Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Theo Tabdeviris, a Deputy Chief Magistrate of the New South Wales Local Court. The Local Court deals with the great majority of criminal offenders, both minor and the more serious. The court frequently explores the range of sentencing options available and His Honour will talk about those options and how the magistrates approach the sentencing of offenders. Welcome Deputy Chief Magistrate. Thank you and welcome to the local court, Peter. Um, I want to talk today about all of the work that the local court does in relation to crime and in particular in relation to sentencing. The court now does a great many criminal cases during the course of any year. Do you have any idea how many you do? We um, have about 360,000 criminal matters a year. About 90% of the state's crime starts and ends in this court. Um, And if you can just imagine the district court and the Supreme Court are busy, we are drinking from a fire hydrant. Yes, it's a useful expression when it comes to courts. Um, a lot of our work, though, is um, work that um, is um, at the bottom end of the um, spectrum of seriousness, although we are getting more and more serious matters along the way. I'll come to that because I want to talk in detail about the options that are available when sentencing in, in the local court. But does that mean that in the course of any one year there would be thousands of sentences handed down by local court magistrates? Correct. Correct. Right. Um, and the range of crime, I know it's impossible to capture all, but the range of crime that you might be sentencing for, that, that range from serious assaults through to really petty? Yes, absolutely. Got petty crime? So we have... Um uh, a lot of domestic violence matters. We have common assaults, stalk, intimidate. We have assault occasioning, actual bodily harm. We have um, grievous bodily harm type matters. Um, we have, um, in the main, break and enter, simpliciter. We have some of the aggravated forms of break and enters, um, m- many of which end up in full-time custodial terms, of course, in terms of imprisonment and the like. We have a jurisdictional maximum for a single offence of two years, and collectively speaking, we're dealing with multiple offences up to five years. And um, I take it you as one of the Deputy Chief Magistrates often are called upon to sentence offenders Absolutely. in your court. For the lowest step is to find the offence proved but dismiss the charge. Mm-hmm. That's a section 10.1 little a. Oh. Now, what sort of so in what sort of circumstance would that be the outcome? Well, Section 9 and Section 10 of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act um, uh, tell a magistrate some of the things they need to take into account. Um, for example, I need to take into account a person's antecedents. I need to take into account their age. I need to take into account um, any um, health or medical condition. I need to take into account their character, the triviality of the offence, any extenuating circumstances, and of course the catch-all, any other matter that the court thinks proper to consider. And so what sort of 
just give us some idea in real life what sort of offence and circumstances an offender might result in uh, that. Well, it, it applies outcome. to a, a vast array of offences, but I might impose um, a Section 101A, for example, on someone who has a fairly unblemished record, um, is unlikely to reoffend, has good prospects for rehabilitation. This was an aberration. Um, both as to character and um, having been at the wrong place at the wrong time. There are a myriad of considerations I would look to um, and then come to the conclusion that the sentencing discretion in Section 101A is adequately enlightened. Um, But then uh, the other options in uh, Section 10, um, can you give us some idea of the circumstances where you might impose one of the other options as opposed to the least um, penal option. So that is a Section 101B, a conditional release order without conviction. Um, I might impose that in circumstances where I wanted the defendant to prove his or her bona fides to the court, to the community, to himself or to herself, um, to place them on conditional liberty to have this sword dangling over them, that if they re-offend, particularly in a like way to the offence I'm dealing with, that all bets are off. They so are then called up for that offence right. uh, and re-sentenced. So they're released into the community, but they've got a, were a sword over them, and then if they, if they offend... If they re-offend, particularly in a like way, yeah. uh, I might then call up the bond, I put them on. And so it's them. your option to call up? Or it, is, it is. Right. It is. So you get a report for it from the police, do you? Or what, what well, if they're, if they're charged again, let's say, for example, that someone is driving uh, while suspended, um, they have absolutely nothing on their record other than perhaps some uh, infractions on their RMS driving um, traffic record, which has brought them to a place where they've incurred too many demerit points within a short period of time. The RMS has decided to suspend them. Um, They are caught driving while suspended then. They come before me. They have a good um, history in the main, despite the fact that they have incurred too many demerit points within a short period of time. They might be a young offender. They might be someone who... Um, has good prospects for rehabilitation. Um, they've done something. They've done the Traffic Offender Program. They've uh, completed a number of sessions with um, uh, a particular organisation, um, the Lifestyle um, Program with um, the Salvation Army, for example. And so I'll give them an opportunity. I'll place them on a good behaviour bond, conditional release order without conviction, and I will warn them. Three months later, that is three months into a six-month or 12-month conditional release order, they re-offend, and this time they re-offend um, in a way that is also driving-related, although not driving while suspended because they've managed to keep their licence, for example. They might have done a burnout. They might have exceeded the speed limit by more than 45 kilometres per hour, and they come before me again. At that juncture, I will call up for breach proceedings, and I will re-sentence the 
defendant for those proceedings and for the fresh matter now, in respect of which he or she has entered a plea of guilty, for example. And that re-sentence at that stage may give rise to a fine or...? It, 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 first and foremost, it may give rise to my revoking the good behaviour bond right. and now imposing a conviction. Right. And then a fine might follow or...? Might be a fine. It might be another conditional release order with a conviction. It might be a community correction order, depending on the seriousness of the matter. First of all, what, what is a community correction order? What does that involve? The community correction order is um, a good behaviour bond which is imposed under Section 8 of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. Um, it can only be imposed in circumstances where the maximum penalty prescribed by Parliament includes a term of imprisonment. Um, it, if it is imposed, um, it would be imposed with some standard conditions, that is, that the defendant not um, commit any offence, uh, that the defendant appear in court if called upon to do so on any breach. And sometimes it's imposed with some additional conditions. So if we go back to our person who's offended and been conditionally released initially without conviction, they then come back before you, they committed another traffic offence. But somewhat more serious, for example. But more serious. Mm. That would potentially carry a, a, a jail term. Could be. And you could then impose a community correction order. For the fresh one. For the fresh one. And then I would have to consider um, what I do with the breach proceedings. That is the breach yeah. of the good behaviour bond, the conditional release order without conviction. I might um, find that it nonetheless falls at the lower end of the scale of objective seriousness, a spectrum which we use to determine um, the gravity of offending conduct. And I might nonetheless deal with it um, by way of a sentence of lesser seriousness. Um, I'm always mindful, though, not to penalty escalate um, on um, breach proceedings in circumstances where it would not adequately reflect the seriousness of the offending conduct. What, what are the most common conditions that you would impose on a community correction order? There are six or seven. There's a curfew condition, community service work condition, although we are limited to the number of hours depending on the length of the community correction order. Community correction orders are usually imposed for 12 months or two years, but they can be up to three years. Um, there might be a rehabilitation condition or a treatment condition requiring an offender to participate in a rehabilitation program or to receive some treatment. Um, there might be an abstention condition, that is to abstain from alcohol or drug taking. There might be a non-association condition or a place restriction, that is prohibiting the person from associating with a person or persons, that is bad peer groups or from frequenting or visiting a particular place or area. And finally, there's a supervision condition, that is, that he or she be supervised by community corrections during the term of the good behaviour bond. And if there's a breach of those conditions or any one of those conditions, does that person then come back before you again? There are two types of breaches. Yeah. There's the ordinary breach where the person has not been engaging has not committed an offence, but has not been engaging with community corrections. They haven't been going to the meetings with community corrections officers, formerly probation and parole officers. They haven't been 
um, following the advice of the community corrections officer to seek um, and take part in treatment, drug and alcohol related treatment. Uh, the community corrections officers have sent numerous warning letters. Uh, they've dropped off um, the the register, as it were, because they haven't been maintaining, they haven't been engaging with community corrections. Uh, in those circumstances, the community corrections officer uh, in charge will um, send a letter through to the court, a breach report, if you will, and I need to make a determination in chambers as to whether to issue a call-up notice or if his or her whereabouts are unknown, to issue a warrant. And for those sorts of breaches, when the person comes before you, what can you do? What, what, I, I what are your powers then? Step into the shoes of the sentencing magistrate afresh and I re-sentence the defendant. So as it were, all bets are off and you're starting again. Correct. Alternatively, though, if I think that they have in that short period of time or with an additional adjournment of six weeks or 12 weeks, re-engaged, essentially purging uh, their contravention, I might decide to find the breach proved but to take no action. Now, you said there was a second type of breach. The second type of breach, of course, is when they re-offend prior. They re-offend. You mean a different crime? A different crime entirely, or or a crime of a similar nature. Um, So, for example, someone is on a a community correction order for a domestic violence-related offence where he or she has um, assaulted um, his or her partner. I've placed them on a community correction order. I've placed them under supervision. I have uh, imposed um, a final apprehended violence order, including a condition that they not um, approach or contact the complainant, their former partner, for a period of 12 months or two years. And within 30 minutes of leaving court, so to speak, they have contravened their apprehended domestic violence order. By doing so, they've committed a fresh offence. They are picked up by police. out the front of the house, um, inside the house of their former partner, um, sometimes having re-offended by further assaulting the former partner. And so they come back to court for the fresh offence of, for example, common assault and contravene apprehended violence order. They plead guilty, let's say. I then call up the breach of the community correction order and I sentence him or her afresh for that matter and for the first time in relation to the fresh matter. Right. We're talking about common occurrences in the court. Very common. This, very happens, this happens hundreds of times. Is that right? Yes. That's, that's a pretty good break, isn't it, for someone to be convicted but not have any, suffer any other penalty. But um, there's a trust involved in that. There are occasions when... Um, it is entirely appropriate um, to place someone on a conditional release order without conviction. And then there are occasions when it is entirely appropriate to place someone on a conditional release order with a conviction. For example, you might put someone on a conditional release order with a conviction um, in circumstances where they have had the opportunity of not having had a conviction recorded in the past. Mm. And so in some respects... Um, they're back before the court. They haven't entirely learned their lesson. But here is another opportunity for them to prove themselves 
um, with the only sting in the tail being that a conviction will now be recorded. Yeah. What you're describing is a system that seems to work to achieve um, reform or, if you like, um, better behaviour by offenders. There seems to be multiple ways in which you seek to achieve that outcome. The important aspect to all this is that whenever we are sentencing someone, um, we are um, looking at Section 3, Capital A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act. That sets out the manifold purposes of sentencing. That is, that the offender is adequately punished um, to prevent crime by deterring an offender from committing similar offences. And so deterrence is then something that spawns into two um, avenues, specific deterrence and general deterrence. Protecting the community from the offender, promoting rehabilitation, making an offender accountable for his or her actions, denunciation, denouncing the conduct of the offender, and of course, um, just as important, recognising the harm done to the victim of a crime, but also to the community, because some crimes are not specific um, to a person. They are more broadly based um, circumstances which involve the community. I think we have to next come to intensive correction orders. Is that right? So there is what I call an imaginary line between the community correction order disposition and what happens thereafter. Um, first and foremost, that imaginary line is what we refer to as the threshold. Um, if we are satisfied that no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate, then Section 5 of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act says essentially that the threshold is crossed. Um, then a term of imprisonment is on the cards. Now, what what are the circumstances, or how do you go about determining that a sentence of imprisonment is the only alternative? Well, um, what does a magistrate look at when making that decision? It's a complex process. There are um, many different and sometimes conflicting factors which a judicial officer needs to take into account. That approach um, requires us to identify all the factors that are relevant to sentence, the aggravating factors, the mitigating factors, to discuss their significance and then make a value judgment as to what the appropriate sentence should be in all the circumstances of this case. I can hear those listening to our discussion, they say, well, what is it that says you're above the line, that, that jail's on, on, on the cards? Can, can you help us to understand that? Yeah. Section 5 is, is framed in a way that says, that uses the words, no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate. What that tells us to do is to consider all the other possibilities, all the other alternatives, and if they would not adequately denote the seriousness of the offending conduct, then the conclusion to which you arrive is that no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate. Easier said than done. Well, I, I can imagine a very difficult decision to make. 
and, and I assume for that reason, sentencing people is not an easy task. It, it involves a certain individualised um, justice and, and it requires judicial officers um, here and elsewhere um, higher up um, the hierarchy to impose a sentence that is indeed just and appropriate in all the circumstances of that particular case. Now, we often hear judges criticised in every, at every level of the system because their sentences are too light. It's a common complaint. Um, when it comes to the decision as to whether or not someone should uh, receive a custodial sentence, effectively jail, um, does the fact that the community might have an expectation about what the penalty should be, does that influence the judge in that decision? I think it's important to remember, though, that we're not... Um, uh, we're not an instrument of um, the community. We live in the community. We too bring to our determination processes, um, just as others do, our own life experiences, our own common sense. And in fact, that's something that judges direct juries on um, when um, dealing with um, facts in the fact-finding exercise as they find them to be. Um, but the principle of imprisonment um, is and always has been a last resort. And, and sorry to press you, but I will. Um, is it punishment that influences that decision? Is it safety of the community? It's all um, those factors in Section 3, capital A, I think. And, and the judge has to weigh them all in the balance. Does that mean that sometimes, depending on the nature of the crime, punishment may be a more significant factor than uh, on other occasions or that safety of the community might be more important? It will be. It will be. Um, it, it, in many cases, I have been heard to say uh, in my reasons for decision, in my judgment, that specific and general deterrence in this particular offence, which is a prevalent offence, ought to feature prominently. Uh, and the way to denote that in some cases will be by a sentence of imprisonment, albeit as a last resort. Well, then, we were, we commenced this discussion um, with consideration of intensive correction orders as we were going up the scale. Now, what are the circumstances in, in which you might think about an intensive correction order and, first of all, what is it? Well, um, an intensive um, correction order is a way of serving a term of imprisonment but doing so in the community. So the person's convicted and sentenced to a term which can be no more than two years having regard to the local constitution for a single offence. Three is it? Two years for, for a single yeah, offence. Two for a single offence. If I'm dealing with multiple sure. offences for intensive correction orders, the term of imprisonment must not exceed three years. Yeah. So you've got this person before you. You've gone through those steps. You've decided that nothing but jail is appropriate. Um, what then uh, is the decision-making process which ends up with an intensive correction order? There is a three-step process. The first question 
being whether there are alternatives to the imposition of a term of imprisonment. Um, the next step is to determine what the term of the sentence should be. And the third one is to consider whether there are any alternatives to full-time imprisonment in respect of that term and whether any available alternative should be utilised. It's important to remember that the appropriateness, it was said in that case, to, of an alternative to full-time custody will depend on a number of factors. One is the importance of um, whether such an alternative would result in a sentence that reflects the objective seriousness and whether it fulfills the manifold purposes of punishment in Section 3, capital A, general deterrence, specific deterrence, denunciation, and the like. An alternative to full-time custody, such as an intensive correction order, you mustn't lose sight of the fact that the more lenient the alternative, the less likely it will fulfill all the purposes of punishment. Well then, so as to help those listening untangle where we've got to, we've talked about community correction orders, and now we're talking about intensive correction orders. What's the difference? Intensive correction orders are imposed as an alternative to full-time custody where you have come to the conclusion that no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate. So it's a form of imprisonment in the community in the event of any breach of an intensive correction order, for example, the State Parole Authority takes over, just as it would had the person been sentenced to a full-time custodial term with a non-parole period. And the Parole Authority doesn't second-guess that. That's Correct. Right. Correct. I see. It's not, it's not that complexity, is it? It's mm. just a, um, now, what sort of conditions might be imposed in relation to intensive correction orders? What's the typical sort of conditions you'd impose now? One is a home detention. Um, what does that mean? Order, which means that the person um, would need to remain at home for the duration of the intensive correction order. Um, you mean by that remain and never leave the home? Correct. That is that they would only be permitted with the supervision or with the knowledge of um, uh, community corrections officers to leave um, the house for predetermined um, arrangements, a medical appointment, um, a, um, a visit to um, um, a hospital, um, a visit to a particular location to um, work on set occasions at set times, um, it's fairly So they could, constrained. Person in home detention could also carry on full-time employment? Well, depends. It depends. Um, if, for example, they were in employment which involved them being a courier, driving around town, probably not. Yeah. Um, for example, they'd be permitted to um, attend the local grocery store, pick up some essentials. Those people who are on home detention invariably, though, have an ankle monitoring, uh, electronic monitoring uh, bracelet. Right. Uh, and so this would um, sound in terms of um, letting authorities know, community corrections know, that they have left home, that they've breached their order and the like. Is it common to impose a condition that 
someone wear a man- ankle bracelet? Well, putting to one side home detention for a moment, one of the other conditions I can impose is electronic monitoring, mm. um, where they are on an intensive correction order. They're permitted to roam um, the community, um, but they have an electronic monitoring um, uh, bracelet, which sometimes is imposed as part of a curfew condition. So, for example, I might say um, you have been sentenced to a term of imprisonment, um, being a fixed term of 12 months, to be served by way of intensive correction order, the standard conditions apply, and the following additional conditions apply. A, electronic monitoring, B, a curfew condition, that is to say that for the first six months out of the 12-month ICO term, you are not to leave home between 10pm and 5am. So if the person does, then that'll register on... It'll be a breach. The breach, coming back to what we said earlier, goes to the State Parole Authority and it doesn't come to the sentencing court. Uh, and what other sorts of conditions might you regularly impose on intensive correction orders? A community service work condition. That is, that they perform community service work for a specified number of hours. Um, but if I am going to impose a condition of that kind, I must obtain a sentencing assessment report. To be sure that they are capable of carrying out that task. A, that they are physically capable. Yeah. Um, uh, and B, that there is um, uh, um, a location at which they can attend to perform that community service work. And they're the, they're the inquiries that are usually made by the community corrections officers. Now, um, the, the, the layperson, the person listening to our discussion, when they hear intensive correction orders, would be thinking about, well, how is the person corrected? Um, one normally thinks about is education, but is there any process that involved in, in intensive correction orders which is, is perhaps education? Well, one of the one of the most important conditions of an intensive correction order is supervision, and so um, community corrections officers will oversee this person's rehabilitation, this person's correction, if you will. Um, that will involve um, requesting that they take part in a variety of programs, a positive lifestyle program, uh, an abstention program, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, a drug and alcohol type component. Uh, They might be required to see um, a therapist, um, a psychologist. They might be required to um, um, visit their doctor to obtain prescriptions, obtain prescriptions in relation to mental health-related afflictions and the like. And I take it similar conditions can be imposed in relation to community correction orders, is that correct? Correct. But not a home detention uh, order, but certainly electronic, um, uh, and certainly um, community service work, rehabilitation conditions, abstention, non-association, place restrictions, things like that, yes. So in terms of our increasing levels of severity, the market between a community correction order and an intensive correction order is a greater, potentially a greater control over the movements of the offender. Is that, is in, that, in, that in part? In part, um, 
It's important to remember that an intensive correction order is an order which involves a finding that no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate. That's not a finding you make in relation to a community correction order. No. But in terms of the impact, that will have an impact, obviously, but in terms of direct impact upon the offender, uh, and again, to help those listening to our discussion, the marker of an intensive correction order, in general terms, will be a greater control upon the movements of the offender. Is that, yes. is that right? Yes. Uh, and that's done because of the ser- more serious nature of the uh, offending uh, right. and the circumstances of the offender in the, being in the need of a greater uh, sense of control. That's right. It's important um, to remember, though, that an intensive correction order um, is not available for certain offences. Um, for example, it's not available for the more serious offences, manslaughter, murder, prescribed sexual offences, counter um, uh, um, uh, breaches of serious crime prevention, public safety orders, offences involving the discharge of a firearm. Uh, and so for those offences, it is clearly not available. There's another aspect to ICOs, though, and that is that they can only be made for domestic violence offences where the court is satisfied that the victim of the offence and any person with whom the offender is likely to reside is adequately protected. Well, that takes us to full-time custody. (laughs) Uh, And again, just to remind those listening, the maximum that a, a local court magistrate can impose by way of custodial term is two years for a single offence or five years for multiple offences. And uh, is it common to be imposing uh, sentences for multiple offences? It is, yes. Well, can can we imagine or can you tell us from your experience what would be a typical case uh, where, for a single offence first of all, where you've decided that the person has to uh, be sentenced to full-time custody? What sort of cases case would be typical in that? Let's take, for example, the scenario where a defendant is a repeat domestic violence, domestic violence offender. Um, he or she has assaulted um, their partner on a number of occasions. They've been dealt with in the past by way of fines. They've been dealt with in the past, dealt with in the past by way of community correction orders. For common assaults, for assaults occasioning actual bodily harm, for contravening apprehended violence orders, for intimidation and stalking of their part, their former partner, and they come before the court yet again, not long thereafter, uh, having completed uh, a period of conditional liberty um, for domestic violence offences, and here they are. Uh, this assault is a fairly serious one. It's one which involved um, a breach of conditional liberty, a circumstance of aggravation. It's one which involved um, uh, uh, having um, detained the complainant, um, not having permitted the complainant to leave the premises where the complainant resides, another aggravating factor. It involved gratuitous cruelty towards the complainant, another aggravating factor in Section 21, capital A, subsection 2. And so I look to 
all of these factors and I decide, and I decide instinctively that no penalty other than imprisonment is appropriate. That is to adequately denote the seriousness of the offending conduct. Um, as a single offence for which he or she is to be sentenced, the maximum penalty prescribed by Parliament for an assault occasioning actual bodily harm under Section 59 of the Crimes Act is a period of five years. Now, that's important because to the extent that terms of imprisonment prescribed by statute exceed the jurisdictional limit of the local court, which is two years for a single offence, then the principles set out in the decision of the Queen and Doan, and more recently in the High Court, the Queen Park, applies such that the objective seriousness of an offender's criminality is to be assessed against the backdrop of the statutory maximum of five years, not the jurisdictional limit of the local court. So, for example, I come to the view that this instance of offending, which left the complainant with bruises to uh, the eye, with welt marks on the complainant's back, um, with stitches to the complainant's um, head, for example, was one which was above mid-range on the scale of objective seriousness for offences of this kind against the backdrop of a five-year statutory maximum. I think, for example, that the person should receive a term of imprisonment of about three years. Of course, I can't impose for a single offence a three-year term. And so if they have pleaded guilty at the earliest opportunity, I take off a 25% discount. My starting point will still be somewhere in the vicinity of two years because that's the statutory, uh, that's the, um, uh, the jurisdictional maximum in the local court. So let's assume you've... You settle on two years. <clears throat> do you <clears throat> do you then have to provide uh, for parole for that person? And so I will um, most likely impose um, a non-parole period with period at liberty on parole. And what would, what would the likely non-parole period be if you settle on a two-year section forty-four of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act? Um, says that it would be 75% on parole period, 25% on parole. If I were of the view, though, that there should be a variation in that statutory ratio, taking into account factors like um, the Bugney principles for Indigenous offenders, taking into account um, uh, the fact that there are mental health-related under which the person was labouring at the time of the offending conduct. I might vary the statutory ratio to 60-40 or even 50-50. But I would need to provide reasons for decision. Now, let's make it more complex um, for our listeners. You have an offender who has committed multiple offences and comes up for sentence before you, in which event the maximum you can impose is a, a total of five years, is that correct? correct? So let's make the assumption that offender has come before you, is convicted of 
for similar offences but on different occasions. How do you go about sentencing that person? I look um, to each of the offences and I um, seek to attribute um, a, a particular um, um, finding with respect to the gravity of the offending conduct in that charge. Um, not all of the four offences in this scenario will involve the same aggravating factors or the same mitigating factors. Um, and so what, um, what we are required to do is first have regard to the principles of totality. Um, what we are we're required, going to have to unpick that so that our listeners know what we're talking sure. about. What we're required to do is to pass um, a sentence, in some respects, an aggregate sentence under Section 53, capital A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, which is a, quote, series of sentences, each properly calculated in relation to the offence for which it is imposed, and then to review the aggregate sentence to determine that it's just and appropriate. Well, let's, um, as it were, go a bit, a bit deeper then. The first offence, uh, you've formed the view on its own, would justify a sentence of two years. Yes. Leave aside the parole question at this stage. And the second offence, you decide also, would on its own justify two years. But the third offence would justify... Six months. Six months. And then... The fourth offence, to get us over five years, would be another, what, two-year offence, maybe 18 months. But nevertheless, your total for each would be, if you just accumulated them, more than five years. It's not, however, a purely um, mathematical um, exercise. In assessing the objective seriousness of an offence where an offender has committed multiple offences, um, the Queen and Ray's councils against indulging in a global assessment. What um, Justice Howie said in Kiyadi and the Queen was that the sentence um, for one offence um, um, is to comprehend and reflect the criminality for the other offence, and if it could not, then the sentences should at least be partly cumulative, otherwise there is a risk that the total sentence will fail to reflect the total criminality for the multiple offences. And so what we do is we accumulate, to some extent, the two years, plus two, plus six months, plus two, to find where the appropriate, just and appropriate sentence lies. For all of the four offences? For all of the four offences. As a a total sentence, is that? Yes. Is that, so Pro that provided, provided, we're, provided that you're not engaging in just a global assessment, you need to look at each offence, make a determination of where it, where it falls on the scale of objective seriousness, and then coming to the principles of totality, determine what the total offence should be, which reflects properly the criminality of the offending conduct. Of all of the conduct. Yes. So totality, uh, this is something that I'm sure you, you appreciate, it troubles many people in the community because it may be different, there may be different victims yes. in each case. And, yes. and, and 
And so and that's one of the reasons why you end up with um, perverse outcomes at times. You might have two, you might have a defendant who is being sentenced for um, two break and enters at two entirely different homes with two entirely different um, uh, victims. Ransacked one home, ransacked the other home, um, was on conditional liberty for the first, not on conditional liberty for the second, um, more aggravating factors featuring in the first, not as many in the second. And so it comes back to the instinctive synthesis of determining, um, together with the principles of totality, um, what the appropriate sentence should be because the court is required to impose a series of sentences, each properly calculated in relation to the singular offence for which um, it is imposed, and then review the aggregate sentence to ensure that it's just and appropriate. Well, let's assume that when you've done all this, you've come to five years as the total, as it were, what, what the judges call head sentence. Yes. What do you do about parole in those circumstances? Section 44 of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act kicks in again with the as statute. Against, as against the five year. As against the five year. Because so you don't do it for each individual. But that requires the imposition of one pronouncement, one term of imprisonment being the aggregate sentence. But it requires me to note the indicative sentences I would have imposed after allowing a discount for a plea of guilty. And in that way, the individual victim is able to see uh, how seriously you treated that particular offence and what on its own would have been the penalty for that offence. Is that yes. the way it goes? Yes. Well, thank you for this fascinating discussion today. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, we, uh, we trust and hope, I'm sure, that those who've been listening to us will have gleaned a little bit more about the system than they might otherwise have known. And uh, I'm sure are very grateful for the time you've made available to us. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to Theo Tadjaviris, a Deputy Chief Magistrate of the New South Wales Local Court. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.